Welcome to the podcast for a better life. I'm Chris Johnson. If you're interested, both the book and film version of A Better Life are available at theatheistbook.com. On today's episode, I speak with Chris Stedman about building secular communities and the challenges we face as a non-religious movement. Chris Dedman is a writer, activist, and community organizer. He was the Interfaith and Community Service Fellow for the Humanist Chaplaincy at Harvard University and the Executive Director of the Yale Humanist Community at Yale University. He is also the author of the memoir, Faithiest, How an Atheist Found Common Ground with the Religious. I asked him about his experience growing up in Minnesota. I left actually 10 years ago, so it, it feels really nice to come back. Um, you know, it's it's where I'm from, my family is here, and um, I, it also feels like a really exciting place to be working on humanism. Um, I mean, most of my professional experiences as a humanist community organizer were in New England, and there are just some really big cultural differences between uh, New England and the Midwest, and, um, you know, I would never discredit uh, the value of the humanist community organizing work that I got to do out east. But in some ways, it feels a lot more, uh, it feels like the stakes are a little higher in the Midwest, like there's a little bit more of a need for it, um, for humanist community resources and support here than in New England, at least so far. Mm -hmm. So that's, Mm -hmm. that's an exciting feeling. I feel like the impact that we can have um, building community for non-religious people here in the Midwest. It just feels uh, it just feels different. So I'm excited about that. And you were raised uh, in Minnesota. You were raised in a secular household, but I know that you converted to Christianity at a young age. And what caused that shift? I did. Yeah. Um, so I, you know, it's interesting. I meet more and more young people who were raised totally uh, irreligiously. And when I was growing up, that felt very sort of, it felt very much like it was not the norm. Most people I knew were growing up in households that were religious in some way. But my childhood was totally irreligious. Um, We just didn't really talk about religion at all. Um, it's not, it's not as if I was raised, um, you know, in a family of outspoken or self-identified atheists. In fact, I don't think I ever heard that word when I was younger, but I didn't hear any talk about God either. We just weren't religious at all. And in some ways, I think that made me kind of curious about religion. It was this like thing that I didn't really understand, that we didn't really talk about, and I knew it was a big part of other people's lives. And in fact, when I was uh, in elementary school, my best friend was Jewish, and it was such a big part of her life that I think I started to look at my own life, and you know, I, I looked at her, and she would talk about how being Jewish uh, you know, it made her a part of this community. It gave her this identity. It put her, it placed her in this bigger story that she was a part of. And I started to look at my own life and kind of wonder what my story was, what community I was a part of. And um, I think I just, you know, it, it wasn't that I felt something was lacking. I just felt like we didn't really have a way to talk about who we were and what we believed. And you know, when I was 11, um, I, as you 
as you said, I converted to uh, Christianity. And as I look back on that conversion now as an adult, I see kind of two big factors that I think set the stage for that conversion. And the first is that about a year prior to converting when I was 10, I started to read books like um, Roots by Alex Haley and uh, Hiroshima and Anne Frank's Diary of a Young Girl. You may be noticing a theme here. Mm -hmm. Um, So these were books that not only uh, increased my awareness of some of the greatest atrocities in the history of human civilization, but they also told the stories of what it was like for people to experience those things in a way that filled me with huge questions. I mean, as much as a 10 year old can have huge questions about the nature of sort of human capacity for evil. And I, you know, I just, I was filled with a profound desire to understand why it is that we can be so cruel and inhumane to each other. And I felt like I was learning about the events that these books uh, detailed in school, but just as like historical fact and not as moral questions. We certainly weren't engaging them as moral questions in school. And I just, I, I wanted to understand what it said about, about being human, that we could do these things to each other. And so when I was invited to this after-school youth group uh, that met at a non-denominational Christian church, I suddenly found a space that was all about trying to answer things that seem uh, like qu- questions that seem like they don't have answers. The mm-hmm. the church completely oriented itself around trying to make sense of things that don't make sense. So that was kind of the first thing I think it was the fir- when I was invited to this church. It was the first time that I found. Uh, a space that was sort of devoted to trying to understand questions of meaning and purpose. And then the second factor um, was that my parents uh, divorced when I was 11. And that was a very uh, sort of tumultuous time in my life. And I was looking for a place to go um, where I could feel supported, a, a place of kind of stability, somewhere I could ground myself. And the church was very much that. Uh, People took a real interest in me. They were very supportive as I was struggling with this. And so for a a short period of time, it felt like uh, this really great thing. It gave me these things that I was looking for. And it it also placed me in this larger story that I was, you know, that I felt like I wasn't a part of when I was younger. It, It didn't take long for me to realized that this community was not as welcoming as it initially seemed because it was incredibly theologically conservative. And more than that, it was fixated on sexuality in particular. Um, And what they called same-sex attraction uh, was a huge focus. It was mentioned in sermons that were otherwise completely unrelated. Um, It was discussed in just about every sort of Bible study. There was a whole section in the church library devoted to dealing with same-sex attraction. And, it, you know, queer people were really demonized. And my conversion coincided with a third thing, which was this emerging recognition that I myself was queer. And so this presented a huge struggle for me because, on the one hand, uh, uh, this church was providing things that I was really looking for, things that I needed. But it was also telling me that in order to get those things, I would have to change something that um, I, something really sort of central about me, something uh, that I couldn't change, uh, though at the time, because I read the books in the church library, and I guess, you know, didn't really want to be queer, uh, because I didn't see any other queer people, know any other queer people, and 
it felt like just another way in which I was different from other people. Um, so yeah, I really struggled with that. And, um, I guess that was the big irony of my conversion is I became a Christian because I was looking for a way to make sense of injustice and a place to connect with others and find support. And instead I really ended up retreating within myself, isolating myself off from most other people and my own sort of personal suffering really increased. And, uh, you know, that was a really hard few years that I was having this internal struggle with my sexual orientation and my uh, faith at the time. Um, but fortunately, my mother, who, again, raised me non-religious, uh, found a journal that I was keeping where I was struggling with this. Um, and she she um, went to the phone book, called up local churches in the community, found a Lutheran pastor who was LGBT affirming and took me to speak with him. And uh, that was a, a hugely um, transformative moment in my life. And I'm so grateful that she did that. Um, and that's ultimately what led me to go to a Lutheran college to study religion, which is where I became an atheist. <laughs> was that process difficult then, going from an affirming church to then kind of dropping it altogether? It was very difficult, yeah. Um, you know, it's funny now to think back on this because I'm actually, so I went to Augsburg University in Minneapolis, which is a, a Lutheran-affiliated school. It's funny to think back on it now because I've actually just returned to Augsburg now as a fellow. Um, I'm doing two fellowships with them right now. And um, it's funny to think back on my experiences there as an undergraduate student and how much I struggled um, because in so many ways, um, I think my struggle would have been so much greater if I had been somewhere else. You know, they are a Lutheran affiliated university, but they are um, so amazing in so many ways. Uh, they um, have the highest percentage of students of color of any college in Minnesota. They have, I believe, the highest number of undocumented students. Um, they have a Muslim student coordinator. Um, so, you know, they are this Lutheran college, but they're, they're, they have this radical commitment to serving students from many different walks of life. And I feel really fortunate that I was there. Um, and in some ways, I'm not sure how <laughs> some people at the university would feel about me saying this. I, I think actually probably most would uh, definitely <laughs> feel good about this and support it. But in some ways, I think what allowed me to finally admit to myself that I didn't believe in God was uh, the fact that I was at this school because I, stu I was studying religion there and I had these uh, Christian religion professors who really challenged me, they really, really pushed me to ask myself what I believed and why I believed it in a way that, you know, allowed me to eventually realize that I'd become a Christian, not because of the theological claims of Christianity, which for me had never really made sense. I always felt like I was trying to convince myself that I believed something that I didn't or that I had to believe this in order to um, get the good things that I was getting out of Christianity, which was being a part of this community that allowed me to reflect on the relationship between my values and my actions and that challenged me to act on those values and um, that gave me this space that I could go for support in times of need. Um, but it was, that was, for me, it was always more about the function of Christianity. And I kind of had to convince myself or try to convince myself to believe things I didn't in order to get those things. And I really credit being 
at Augsburg and having the professors that I did for really pushing me to, to not just study religion academically, but also to think about my own stake in the conversation and why I believed the things that I did. And that really was why I ultimately deconverted, um, which again, I think <laughs> some professors probably, well, I know for a fact from talking with some of them, they kind of get a good laugh at that. Um, but, you know, it's it was hard because I was at a, a religiously affiliated school. Um, the, the majority, if not all, I think, of my classmates were themselves Christians. And um, I just felt like, you know, just like when I was recognizing that I was queer when I was younger, I felt like, I didn't see other non-theists around me. Um, I didn't really know anyone who um, I at least who at least I knew didn't believe in God. And so I just felt like I wasn't sure who to talk to about this. I, I certainly didn't feel like I had a community of people around me who understood the experience I was having. And, you know, because we live in this world that is so or that can often feel so polarized when it comes to these kinds of differences. I felt like I really didn't know what to do with religion anymore. Um, I just felt like, you know, there was so much division around religion. And I had had so many challenging experiences um, with my own religious journey that, you know, I, I just felt like to be an atheist, um, I had to just completely reject religion reject my previous experiences within religion, um, rather than to say, you know, I'm not religious, and I have some real critiques of r religious ideas and the ways in which religion has been used to dehumanize and harm so many people, but also religion played a big role in shaping the person that I am. And, you know, but I think because I had spent so much time trying to, or I had spent so much time really struggling with my religious identity, that by the time I finally came out on the other side, um, I just had a lot of, you know, anger and bitterness and frustration that I had to deal with. And it was hard to do that while also continuing to study religion at a religious institution. I think it was ultimately a really good experience. And again, it feels so um, wonderful to come back to the institution now and to work with a lot of the same people that I studied with uh, back when I was there. But, uh, you know, it was definitely a challenging time in my life. How did you move beyond that anger period? First of all, I think the anger period was important. Um, I, I think I really needed to tend to those emotions. Um, and I think there were a lot of there was a lot of anger in me that was there um, that had been there for a long time. That was there from when I was much younger and had really um, internalized a lot of self-loathing. Um, from my experiences in fundamentalist Christianity. And it was really important to acknowledge those feelings and honor them and pay attention to them. But I am really happy that I didn't sort of stay in that place. Um, and I think a big part of why I was eventually able to move forward from that was um, having people who were very patient with me, who were very willing to listen to um, my experiences but also it was working alongside religious people and seeing, um, being reminded that religion is very, it's a very complicated thing. It's not black and white. Um, it is used to dehumanize and harm many people. And it is all, it has also been used 
to or it has given people spaces and opportunities to do really important things. And, you know, I was working um, when I was a student at Augsburg, I was uh, working at a community center that primarily served recent immigrants from Somalia, and the majority of them were Muslim. And, you know, before working there, I really hadn't had conversations with Muslims about Islam. And, you know, to be honest, coming of age in, you know, post 9-11 America, I had a lot of assumptions about Muslims and what they believed. And working there really challenged a lot of my assumptions. And I, I write in my book, Faithiest, about a conversation I had with a Muslim woman that I was working with there, where she talked about these horrific experiences of harassment that she had because she wore a hijab, she wore a head covering. Um, and she detailed these horrible experiences where people had shouted just the most uh, inhumane things at her. People had thrown rocks at her. And again, I was very ignorant. I It hadn't occurred to me that she would experience this. And as she told me this, I found myself getting really angry. I found myself getting upset. But I also found myself really identifying with a lot of the emotions that she was describing. Because as a queer person, I've also experienced street harassment. I've also had people who I didn't know shout really horrible things at me. I've also been physically assaulted. And, you know having that conversation with her, it opened me up to not just focus on the ways in which she and I were profoundly different. And we were both in terms of our experiences, um, but also in terms of our worldviews. But it was a reminder that the shared experience of being human is important too. And um, that at that moment in my life, I was so focused on the ways in which I was different from other people. I was so focused on um, the ways in which our differences could divide us that, you know, as I began to reflect back on that conversation I had with her years later, I was reminded that in this world that again, really pushes us to focus on differences, um, in a world where the sort of conflict driven media shapes so much of our understanding of difference, um, that it's, it's actually really important to go out of your way to try to focus on ways in which your experiences and worldview intersect with those of others and to try to understand people who are different. And that's ultimately what um, sparked my interest in interfaith dialogue and interfaith cooperation, because, you know, we as a society, we have this conflict narrative that trains us to believe that differences ultimately have to be a source of conflict. And that's not to say that they aren't um, or that they can't be. Of course they can. Um, and we shouldn't ignore those differences or pretend they're not there or avoid, avoid hard, hard conversations about those differences. But because that's the lens through which we're trained to view difference, we actually have to make an active effort to try to understand people who are different and to focus and seek out um, areas of agreement. That's important in terms of social progress. You know, as a, a non-theist, I believe that, um, you know, as Martin Luther King Jr. said, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. And as a humanist and non-theist, I think it's human beings who have to ensure that that happens, who have to bend that arc. Um, and, you know, we that narrative that difference leads to conflict, it's actually um, sort of not rational. And as, uh, as rationalists, I think we have an obligation to counter that 
Steven Pinker wrote this great book um, a few years ago called The Better Angels of Our Nature that lays out using data um, the fact that the world is actually getting more cooperative and less violent. But if you turn on the news, um, you all you see is stories of violence and conflict. And when I go on Twitter in the morning, it's very easy to believe that the world is getting worse. I mean, our president says, you know, we're getting more violent in America, and but it's it's not the truth. And similarly, you know, there's this narrative that says that religious and non-religious people um, have nothing in common and that our, you know, religious differences have to lead to conflict and disagreement. But over the last better part of a decade now, I've discovered that that certainly isn't the truth. And it's been working alongside religious people and having hard and honest conversations about those differences, but also seeking areas of agreement. Um, that has been a big part of actually my own personal sort of development um, and helping me move on from some of the uh, sort of frustration and pain that I had around uh, my difficult experiences in religious communities. A common thread in your work is the importance of community. Um, you know, you've worked with community at Harvard, you worked with community at Yale, and now you're back in Minnesota working with community again. Have you found that the needs are different in a secular space versus a religious one? What has that difference been like for you? Yeah, I think the needs are certainly different. But, you know, a big part of what has motivated me to want to work to build community for non-religious people is actually recognizing that as human beings, we all have these needs. We have these needs to be in community, to have a space where we can step out of our everyday life and be alongside like-minded people and reflect on the purpose of our lives and be reminded of the way in which we're trying to live and be held accountable to our beliefs. I mean, that's what religious communities are really is that is accountability spaces, religious communities at their best are accountability spaces. And I think about my mom, for example, who goes to a church and for her, it's less about the theology. In fact, you know, I think she would describe herself as philosophically agnostic. She doesn't believe that Jesus was the son of God. Um, but she goes because she, you know, she says that she finds after she goes to church, she's, um, she lives in sort of more in line with her values. She, you know, she goes out of her way to be kind to other people. She calls up the distant relative who might be isolated. Going to church, though, you know, she doesn't agree with everything they say. It reminds her um, that she's trying to live a certain way. And I think that that's something that we all can benefit from. Um, not you know, I'm not interested in communities that are dogmatic or coercive or force you to believe certain things. But I do think that these kinds of communities at their best can give you a space to reflect on your life and the way that you're living and challenge you and push you to, you know, act on your values. Um, and, you know, I think for secular folks, this feels really important because, as you know, the demographic data shows that people are rapidly becoming much less religious in this country and yet non-religious people have access to so, um, you know, to fewer resources than religious people do. And I think this has real ramifications for everybody. Um, in American Grace, a book by Robert Putnam and David Campbell, they lay out the fact that in the United States, religious people are a lot more civically engaged than non-religious people are, meaning they volunteer more, they give more money to charity, both religious and secular charities, they vote more. Evangelical Christians have a voter registration rate that's three times higher than the non-religious do. 
Um, and so in all these ways, religious Americans are just more involved in their broader communities. They contribute more to society. In the words of Putnam and Campbell, they're better neighbors than the non-religious are. But they also found that a non-believing spouse of a religious person who was involved in their spouse's religious community was just as civically engaged. And so they say the correlation between being religious and being a good neighbor in this country has less to do with a particular belief and more to do with belonging, with being a part of a community that reminds you to act on your values, that challenges you, that gives you a space to reflect and connect with others. And they go so far as to suggest that morally oriented non-religious communities could play a similar function in helping non-religious people be more civically engaged. And when we look at the current political landscape and civic landscape in this country, I think there, you know, this is a really important issue that needs to be addressed um, because we've got this rapidly growing segment of the population, the non-religious, who are just less involved in their broader communities than the religious are. And you look at the last election, you look at um, what's going on in our country right now, and I think this this feels really important. And the reason I am interested in building humanist communities as opposed to just um, sort of secular or atheist communities is because I think that humanism as a value system has something really important to offer. Um, and, you know, there's there's a few reasons for this. The first is that um, my atheism is a really important part of my identity. It's something I never want to shy away from. And it's it plays a central role in shaping the way that I see the world and the fact that I think it's up to human beings to address human problems. Um, but, you know, being an atheist, that tells me nothing about what a person believes about other things. And it leaves so much else open to disagreement. And so it's really it's a really hard thing to organize a, a community around, especially a sort of morally or oriented community. Richard Spencer, the prominent white nationalist, white supremacist, um, or as many people may commonly know him as the Nazi who got punched twice now. Um, he did an interview earlier this year with a, a prominent atheist blogger where he talked about the fact that he's an atheist. And um, you know, I have to say, I was a little disappointed that I didn't see, um, I don't think I saw any of the national secular or atheist or humanist groups really come out and say anything about that and condemn, uh, you know, the fact that this person who shares our identity um, is uh, doing such horrible things. I think that was a missed opportunity, unfortunately. But, you know, he's a perfect example of how somebody can be an atheist, how I, I can share my atheism with someone, but um, be completely uh, on opposite sides on sort of everything else. And so, you know, I can't say Richard Spencer isn't an atheist, but I can say that he's not a humanist. Um, and uh, it's not just, you know, that's just one example, but I think humanism actually um, is important for another reason, which is uh, Interfaith Youth Corps, which is this nonprofit organization based in Chicago um, that I used to work for and that helps um, students at colleges and universities across the country learn how to have dialogue and work together with people who have different worldviews than they do. They just did a, this year, I believe, they did a large uh, survey of college and university campuses across the country. And they found that, um, and this is some new data that they, they've either just put out or about are about to put out, um, they found that the students that they surveyed who identified as secular humanist 
as opposed to the students that identified as atheist, agnostic, non-religious, or none, or nothing in particular, they had a much higher commitment to their worldview. They were more involved in programs on their campus, especially programs that engage meaning and purpose. They um, had a higher pluralism orientation, so they were more open to learning from and working with people who don't share their worldview. So in all these areas, they were more involved and more committed and um, so this, this brings me back to the civic engagement piece. I think if we're trying to think about how do we address this issue of the religiously unaffiliated being less involved in their communities, less committed, um, less engaged overall, I think this is where humanism can come in and be really helpful because when I think back to my own personal sort of journey and development around this stuff, um, there were years when I was identifying as uh, by what I wasn't. Um, as I, you know, I was an atheist. I was non-religious. I was nothing. Um, and I think the way that we think about and talk about um, our sort of worldview and our our, our ethics shapes. It, there's a real relationship between that and our actions in the world, and it really shapes the way that we see the world. And when you're primarily or first and foremost identifying yourself by what you're not and organizing your efforts um, around this uh, sort of negation, I think it, I think there's a, a relationship there between that and the, the sort of way you move through the world and your actions in general. And so I think humanist communities can be a really important space for non-religious people to come and reflect on not only what they don't believe in and what they've, you know, for many of us, what they've rejected, which I think, again, is an important conversation, but I think there's so much more conversation to be had after that and that's why I'm really excited about some of the projects that I'm working on here in Minnesota, especially actually some of the research that I'm doing as a fellow um, with Augsburg, because we're actually about to embark on a survey um, that we're going to pull together with faculty and student involvement, um, where we're actually going to go out and survey religiously unaffiliated people here in Minnesota to find out what they believe, what communities they're currently involved in, what they're are because right now all the data that we have on the religiously unaffiliated is you know somewhat shallow it tells us that they're not religious that they're not looking for a religious community but it doesn't really go much deeper than that and i want to really try to understand who this population is what they believe in what their passions are um, what they're currently doing so that as we start to shape this uh, center for humanist life in minnesota which is one of the other projects i'm working on that we can actually build it um, in response to those things, that it can be intentionally built to uh, meet the needs that this population has and to help support them as they try to be more involved in their broader communities and, and to help them think about what their values are um, and what kind of you know life they're trying to live. And so again, I think atheist organizations um, have a really important role to play. I think the conversation around being an atheist and normalizing atheism and destigmatizing atheism, I think these are all really important conversations. But to me, that's just the beginning of the conversation. Um, and we, we have to move from there to thinking about what we do believe and how that shapes our actions in the world. Um, because, you know, I, I am an atheist. It's an important piece of who I am. But I'm also so much more than that. And to say that I'm an atheist tells you nothing else um, beyond that. And it's, you know, again, 
I just I know I'll come back to this. I know I'm repeating myself, but um, you know, I I there, I can't. I can't deny that Richard Spencer is an atheist. Um, but though he, when he published a link to that interview, he actually titled it the alt-right and secular humanism. Um, and even though he titled it that I can say, and I can argue so much of what he believes, uh, runs counter to the values of humanism, but I can't say that he's not an atheist. Um, so as much as I have gotten a great deal out of being involved in atheist groups and organizations, I think we have to be organizing not just around the things that we don't believe in, but also and especially the things that we do. I get very worried, actually, when I look at the demographic data and I see this very quickly growing number um, of non-religious people um, because, you know, and I, I get why a lot of people in our community get very excited about this and champion this data, but I get worried because I worry that these folks aren't going to have spaces where they can turn to in times of need and support and reflect on their lives and that um, they're vulnerable to being preyed on by um, folks, you know, like the alt-right um, who are very intentional about seeking out people who feel alienated and isolated and trying to bring them into the fold. And, you know, it, it really, it troubles me and it worries me um, to see uh, a number of folks. It's, and it's not just Richard Spencer. There was that prominent, a lawmaker in New Hampshire who the Daily Beast exposed as um, starting this men's rights uh, discussion on Reddit, um, where there's a lot of really horrible things being said all the time. And he is also an atheist. And, you know, we've, we've seen in the atheist community, these currents of, um, you know, of sexism, of uh, racism. Um, there are prominent YouTube accounts, atheist YouTube accounts with uh, you know, so many subscribers that um, describe feminism as a poison. And, you know, I, I think about these things and I get really worried that when we focus so much of the conversation on what we don't believe in and what we disagree with, that we're, we're not attending to an, an, a really important part of the conversation, which is what we do believe in, and that that leaves us vulnerable to these, um, you know, these white supremacists and uh, anti-feminist uh, perspectives gaining traction in our community. So it, it's something that, that really concerns me. Yeah, that's one of the reasons why I did the work that I did was I felt that it was important, and I've said this before, to, like you said, talk about what we do believe in and not just what we don't believe in. Yeah, that's one of the things I really loved about your project. And, um, you know, I think it's so important to put faces to atheism and to give atheists the opportunity um, to to talk about, you know, what our values are, because, you know, we can talk about it all we want, but in the media climate that we exist in right now, it's really hard to get that perspective out there. Atheists are very rarely given the opportunity to speak at all in media, and the very few opportunities we have are in being asked to um, either defend our very existence or, um, you know, to play into this story of conflict. And so, you know, when you see atheists getting the opportunity to um, be visible in media, it's often, you know, when it's playing into this clash of civilizations narrative rather than uh, when it's an opportunity for an atheist to talk about the things that they do believe in and the values they hold. So I think it's really important. And I definitely appreciate what you're doing because of that. Thank you. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I think to many people listening, that approach might seem commonplace. But how do you think that approach differs from that of many mainstream atheist activists? 
I don't know that it differs um, all that much, but I do think, you know, when I look at a lot of the atheist and humanist organizations, um, I see a lot of really great work happening. But I also have felt for many years, um, as someone who's doing on the ground community building and community organizing, that there's a disproportionate amount of um, emphasis put on, you know, sort of uh, church state separation lawsuits, which again, are really, really important. And I would never um, put those down. Um, But there's a lot of emphasis put on those things and on, um, you know, having an annual conference and those kinds of things. And again, very important stuff. But um, I, I think that our, the local communities, I, and I know this from traveling or I've had the opportunity and you, I, I would be really interested to hear if this is something that resonates with you, but I, because I know you've traveled around a lot too, but I've had the opportunity to travel all over the country and around the world, um, over the last eight years and visit atheist and humanist communities all over the place. And I know that many of these small local communities struggle to s- sustain themselves and to get resources and support and so many of them are you know run by volunteers who are overextended and i look at religious denominations um that put a lot of uh financial and systemic support into these local communities and you know i think that that's something that our organizations i would love to see more and i know this is an opinion shared by many um within these national organizations i've talked to them um, but i would love to see more support for grassroots community building uh, because i really think that it's essential right now we've got this all these people who are becoming non-religious but you know for, i you know i've worked a lot with college and university students and when if you're a Jewish student or a Muslim student or a Christian student, you've got these resources when you're on campus and then you graduate and you move and you can, you can move somewhere and you know that there's going to be a church or a mosque or a synagogue in your community. And you might not go all that often, but you know it's there. And when you do need it, you know, you, you can go. Um, and for secular folks, um, they don't necessarily know that. They don't, and, and um, even if there is a humanist or a secular community in their area, you know, those communities are often really, you know, they have a hard time um, being able to reach people as much as they would like to, to do the kind of programs they would like to. And so this is actually a big part of why um, we're trying to build this humanist center here in Minnesota, because there are these existing humanist and secular groups here in the state that, you know, are all um, volunteer driven, um, for the most part, and uh, that are, you know, that they have a hard time um, being able to keep themselves going and they really rely on their members giving donations. Um, but it's, you know, it's 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 hard to keep that going. And so I think they're wanting to work together more closely and try to create a way for these groups to all um, sort of thrive by working more closely together I lived on the East Coast for almost a decade, and so I I always think about it as this uh, Kennedy quote about how a rising tide lifts all ships. But now I'm, that I'm back in Minnesota, I'm trying to shift to a Paul Wellstone reference. <laughs> we all do better when we all do better. And, you know, because so many of our atheists and secular and humanist organizations and groups are small, um, you know, we're a small movement still compared to a lot of other movements you know, we don't have as many resources as religious denominations do, for example. And it can, sometimes there's this feeling of scarcity that we all need to kind of fight for our one 
um, organization that we're a part of. Um, but I think that if we work together, if we sort of pool our resources and try to um, find ways to share resources and work together, that it will actually help all of our groups. And so that's that's the model that we're trying to explore here in Minnesota now is what would it look like for these humanist and secular groups to work more closely together and work together to try and serve this growing population of non-religious people. And, you know, I'm excited to see what comes of that. Um, most of my humanist community building experience so far has been rooted in a connection to um, an academic institution. I was uh, I worked for the humanist community at Harvard. I built the humanist community at Yale. And, um, you know, we always had a mission in both of those organizations to serve the broader community. But because it was affiliated with um, a university, you know, we, ha we always had a little bit of a harder time with that. And so I'm really excited about building a center for humanist life that is really about serving a broad uh, range of people, um, not just college university students, but people uh, from all walks of life all ages, all backgrounds, because those are the kinds of communities that I have most enjoyed being a part of, where you have people who come from all over the place coming together and bringing their very different experiences and perspectives together um, and being in community in that way. And so, yeah, I would just say overall, um, I would love to see, and I think it's happening actually, and I think there are some really amazing activists um, and organizers who are pushing for this, but I would love to see more of an emphasis and more support for the grassroots communities um, at the same time as we're focused on these sort of uh, media pushes and, um, you know, uh, lawsuits and, and all of those other things that are, are very important. But I, I, you know, I'd be interested to hear, cause I know you two travel around all the time. If you have felt this same um, thing, if you've gotten the same sense that these local grassroots communities, communities where really amazing stuff is happening, um, they, that they do struggle. It really depends on where you are. Uh, some communities are doing really, really well, um, and some are struggling a lot. Um, I think leadership has a lot to do with that. So if you have somebody who's really competent and charismatic and good and dedicated, um, they can do a lot even with a little. Um, mm. But uh, other areas, even though they have resources, if the leadership isn't good, their community isn't necessarily going to thrive. They also need um, a lot of people to help and support um, and be a part of the community. Local people giving money, giving time, attending events. That's a really important thing, too, at least from what I've seen. This is where a lot of these humanists and atheists and secular groups have to do, if, if you'll allow it, a little bit of soul searching. Um, because I, you know, I was, I recently spoke at a humanist community meeting and this really wonderful guy asked a question during the Q&A where he was saying, you know, my kids are all in their 30s and they're, and I, you know, I'm obviously paraphrasing him. So if, if he's listening and I'm misrepresenting what you said, I really apologize. Um, <laughs> But he, to my recollection, he said, you know, his, my kids are in their 30s. They don't believe in God, but they're not interested in humanism at all. I just, you know, I, I can't get them interested in humanism. And, you know, I think the thing that it made me um, think about, the thing I, I said in response was, you know, I, I don't know that it's necessarily that they are disinterested in humanism or, or could be, or could not be interested in humanism, but it's that humanism as it exists right now is not speaking to their needs and to the things that 
you know, matter to them. They're not interested in humanism as it currently functions and exists. I think that a lot of humanist and atheist and secular groups have to be very um, open to and willing to radically reimagine the way that they're doing things, that the issues that they're addressing, who's speaking for them. And, you know, I think that this is, uh, this is really important because I meet, I travel around and, and also just in my sort of everyday life, I meet people all the time who are not religious. And when I talk to them about what I do and about what my interests are, you know, so many of them um, say that, you know, humanism is very much aligned with what they believe and um, with what they're interested in. And they didn't know it existed. And they're really excited to find out about this stuff. But when they go to one of the meetings, you know, they don't necessarily feel like it speaks to their interests or it doesn't engage them in the way that they're wanting to be engaged. And so I really do think that our groups and our organizations and communities are going to have to be willing to completely reimagine and rebuild what we're doing. Um, and, you know, I, I think oftentimes, and I've been guilty of this too, um, oftentimes we have this idea that, oh, if more people just found out about what we were doing as we're doing it right now, then they would be excited about it and they would get involved. And we think that the issue is lack of visibility and lack of awareness. And certainly that is an issue, but I think that's not the biggest issue. And it's certainly not the only issue. Um, I think that people do find out about what we're doing, but it may not speak to the realities of their lives and the concerns that they have and the interests they have. This is just anecdotal, but so often I've had friends come to atheist events or humanist events and say, you know, this group is talking about God or religion more than I used to hear my church talk about it. And, you know, for a lot of these people, they're not religious, but they're just not really interested in that conversation. They, you know, they're much more focused on Black Lives Matter. They're more focused on resisting the current administration. They're focused on supporting dreamers. They're focused on um, fighting for an equal wage for women. They're focused on protecting LGBTQ uh, rights, you know, and um, of course, our groups are addressing those things, but I think that the the emphasis that we often put on not believing in God or in just in talking about these things, it can sometimes, uh, and again, totally anecdotal, I would love to see some more research to, into this and whether or not this is true, but I, I think it can drive folks away sometimes. And, and I think I, that's why I'm really excited about doing this research, because I want to find out what the interests and needs of this population are so that we can build something that will actually serve them rather than saying we're already doing things that are great, which we are, but rather than saying, you know, we're already doing things. And if we just help them find out that these things are going on, then they'll want to get involved. Cause I don't, I don't know that that's true. Yeah, definitely. I think that there is a huge issue when it comes to um, awareness of our movement, but it's not just about awareness. I mean, it's like what you mentioned where, it's not that all these people haven't heard about it. And once they hear about it, it's, you know, they're going to gravitate towards us. We need to do both those things at the same time. We need to not only let people know we exist, but we also need to provide a community that is going to be supportive of the needs of the people that we find are interested in this. Absolutely. And oftentimes that's going to mean having to sort of step out of the way and ask questions and be willing to have really hard conversations and to listen and learn and to give up space. I mean, I'm, I'm well aware and sort of constantly reflecting on the fact that, you know, I'm in a movement where the majority of the sort of most visible and vocal um, sort of advocates are cisgender white men. 
and I too am a cisgender white man. And, um, you know, that's a real problem if the majority of the folks that are given the most sort of um, visibility and platform um, are cisgender white men, then, you know, you've, you've got all these other people who are not going to um, see our community as, as a, being a place for them, who aren't going to see their the realities of their lives being sort of addressed and spoken for. We have to do a much better job um, as a movement of, of um, elevating and lifting up folks who come from different perspectives and backgrounds. And for a lot of us, that's going to mean stepping out of the way, which is why I try to always um, do it you know, do a good job of, um, you know, sometimes I'll, if I'm invited to speak somewhere, um, I'll, you know, I'll suggest somebody else. Or when I was doing a column for religion news service, um, where I was their atheist columnist, I was constantly trying to have guest posts. Um, and because, you know, I can only speak to my own, um, experiences and the ways in which being an atheist and a humanist, um, is connected to those things. There's so much else that I can't speak to. And, um, you know, I think I can, I can continue to do a better job of that. And I think we all can, but, um, you know, that's, I think if we want our community to be a space where many different kinds of people feel like their concerns, um, are being addressed and prioritized, then for a lot of us, um, that's going to involve stepping out of the way and uh hard thing to do but it's it's essential um and yeah i i haven't always done a great job of that and i'm i you know that's something over the years i've tried to get better at are you optimistic about the direction we're headed i am um i mean it can feel really challenging and i know a lot of there are a lot of really really amazing atheists and humanist folks who have been involved in the movement and who have left um who i know from over the years um and you know I, I, that makes me sad. Um, and for a lot of them, it's because, uh, they, they were frustrated with some of the priorities of the movement or they felt like their concerns, especially as, you know, non-white cisgender men were not necessarily being addressed, but I'm also optimistic because I think the movement's been having really hard, but important conversations. And certainly I know in a lot of the national organizations, there have been a lot of these conversations, but more so I see them even happening on the grassroots level. I think back, I did an interview with uh, Monica Miller, um, who is a professor at Lehigh University in Pennsylvania and has done a a lot of scholarship on humanism and African-American experience. And she, I asked her about what would you say to um, white humanists who are wanting to address the fact that their communities are so white. And, um, you know, this was years ago, and I, I really don't want to, <laughs> I don't want to paraphrase what she said and, and mess it up. So I would suggest going and actually reading the interview. But I remember she talked about how so many of these humanist groups, um, you know, and this is my word, but they're well-intentioned humanist groups who will basically say, um, you know, we just need to bring in a speaker who can talk about, you know, black humanism, and that will sort of help, you know, us bring in other people. And we'll just, you know, we'll invite other people to come to us. And she pointed out that you actually, if you want to make your community um, more diverse and uh, appeal to a broader range of people, you have to actually leave your space and go out into the world and 
meet people and learn from them and find out what it is that um, what their realities are and what their priorities and concerns are. And so it's going to mean leaving our um, our bubble and, you know, going out into the world and really listening and learning and being willing to um, realize the ways in which we haven't always done things well and to reckon with those things and to be honest about those things. Um, and I think that's the only way that we're going to uh, really expand as a movement and reach more people. And so again, I would just, I would really recommend, you know, listening to the folks within the movement now who are doing so much work around this. Um, Sincere Carabo at the American Humanist Association is really, really wonderful. He's someone I've learned a lot from, you know, it's, it, it's really for, for me, when I think about this, um, and the communities that I've served and wanting to make them, um, more, uh, re- resonant with a broader range of people, especially folks who aren't white cisgender men like me, it's, I really have had to do a lot of listening, ask a lot of questions and be willing to step outside of, um, my own bubble, um, to do that. And, you know, I, I think we have so much that humanism and the secular community more broadly has a lot to offer. Um, especially the growing number of non-religious people in this country. And, uh, you know, I, I'm I'm hopeful that we will um, be able to offer them something. But I, again, I think it, it's going to involve asking ourselves hard questions and being willing to stretch ourselves in ways that maybe we haven't been stretched before and to really listen to the voices of folks who have not gotten as much um, of a platform in our movement and our community and uh, listen to the things that they've been saying and learn from them. And, you know, I, I, I hope that our organizations will continue to, um, you know, address a broader range of concerns. Um, and I think that's, that's a big part of what um, is needed in order to reach a broader range of people. And, and I think what makes me hopeful is I've, I've seen that happen. I've seen shifts Um, in that direction in our community. And and that makes me optimistic for sure. Chris, thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me. I really enjoyed the conversation and look forward to um, talking again soon, I hope. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast and would like to support it, please visit patreon.com slash the atheist book. For more information about the book and film versions of A Better Life, visit theatheistbook.com.